You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Bethany Marsh from the University of Nottingham. Her paper was entitled Irish Refugees and the Nature of Migration, an Examination of Refugee Migration after the 1641 Irish Rebellion. So in the wake of the 1641 Irish Rebellion, thousands of English and Scottish Protestant refugees became displaced. And today, refugee studies typically focus on government responses to refugees, refugee assimilation into host communities, and the attitudes of natives towards newcomers. Consequently, refugee migration has often been oversimplified and presented as a linear process, a simple case of people moving from A to B. But by reconstructing reconstructing the migration patterns of individuals after the outbreak of the Irish Rebellion in October 1641, it is clear that this linear view needs re-evaluation. So in this paper, I'm going to look at three refugees, uh, Charles Anthony, Lady Mary Lee, and Archbishop Archibald Hamilton. And in reconstructing their lives, uh, we will see that uh, the variations and complexities of refugee migration... Now, Horder, Lucasen, and Lucasen, in seeking to move away from this linear model of migration, identified three phases in the process of migration, which could be repeated multiple times, meaning, in essence, a period of displacement was made up of a series of mini-migrations. So the first phase um, is the decision-making phase, in which an individual or a group decides to leave a place, which um, at, the, at the start of the period of displacement will have been the initial event that caused displacement, i.e. the rebellion in Ireland. Phase two is the voyaging phase, the physical movement of um, people between places. And then phase three is the settling phase, where migrants enter a new society. Now, this remains a fairly simplistic model, as it fails to consider a number of factors Firstly, it fails to consider the external factors which actually influenced um, refugees in the voyaging phase. For example, communication along roads between refugees, which told them where rebel troops were moving. Um, The destruction of roads and bridges, and the amount of aid that might have been available in different places as they moved. These, alongside other factors, would have influenced where refugees chose to travel, meaning migration was a fluid process, continually changing as circumstances required. Another issue is the label settling phase, as it gives no indication of the duration in which refugees uh, remained in a place or whether they actually intended on remaining in that place permanently. So for this reason, I have defined the end of the displacement period as the decision to permanently settle, 
So that is when a refugee chooses not to leave a place for the foreseeable future. For example, refugees who resettled in England and didn't go back to Ireland. But of course, this has its own issues in that it requires us to know when refugees decided that they weren't going to move, um, which is very difficult to gauge. Now, despite the difficulties with this model, it is useful in highlighting the complexities of refugee migration. And indeed, the first case study that I'll look at of the Protestant minister, Charles Anthony, um, the the transitions between these three phases on multiple occasions do um, become clear. And it also shows how migration was a fluid process continually being changed. So Charles Anthony, he was born around 1600 in England, most likely in the city of London. He was educated at Cambridge and then at Oxford. And then sometime between September 1636, when he's ordained as a, ordained as a deacon, and 1641, he became vicar of Balichione in County Derry, and he resided in Balane. I hope I've said those correctly. Um, according to Charles's deposition, as rumours of the uprising reached Balani, the inhabitants of the town took refuge in the fortified house of Henry Conway, locally known as the Castle. By the beginning of November, without sufficient manpower or munitions, Conway had surrendered the castle to the rebels in exchange for safe passage out of the town. And around this time, Charles uh, fled Balani with one William Gardner Jr. in search of additional forces to, quote, beat back the enemy. They travelled to Port Now, where they stayed for 10 days at the castle of Thomas Church, but Church was unable to offer any assistance as his castle was also undermanned. So the pair travelled on to Colrain, where they stayed for a further 10 days. But Charles, persuaded by the aforementioned Thomas Church, left Gardner in Colrain and returned to Port Now to reside in the castle and practice his ministry to the distressed Protestants who travelled to Port Now for protection. But Charles was only able to remain there for five weeks, as by December the rebels had captured a number of key towns um, and fortifications to the southwest. And in response to this, um, having received letters from the mayor and aldermen of Colerane, Church led those who were residing in the castle at Port Now back to Colerane for safety. This didn't prove to be a very successful move, as conditions in Colerane were extremely poor. According to the testimony of James Redfern, there died there of robbed and stripped people of Protestants that hither had fled for succour at the number of 7,000 or thereabouts, besides those of, those of the town that had anciently dwelt there. And that the mortality there was such and so great that 700 or 800 more died on two days. Conti- uh, conditions continued to decline as the rebels laid siege to the port. This lasted around six weeks, at which time Charles estimated that around 220 people were dying a week. And it was only after the town was uh, relieved by the Earl of Antrim in May that Charles was presumably able to escape Colerain and depart to Dublin, where he gave his deposition on the 12th of June. Now, if Charles had fled to Dublin in the hopes of receiving relief and resettling, he was to be sorely disappointed, for conditions in the Irish capital were not much better than Colerain. By the summer of 1642, the city was also overrun with displaced victims of the rebellion. In a letter delivered to the Long Parliament um, in England on the 16th of March, the Lord Justices had estimated that around 4,000 Protestant refugees had arrived into the city, 
And these refugees were being um, sustained on a meagre 50 pounds a week. That's all together. Um, and the number was so great, it was impossible to provide sufficient food, clothing, and shelter to all of them. And uh, Jane Olmeyer has um, estimated that around 30, uh, 30 of these refugees were dying a day from want of subsistence. It was perhaps this lack of aid which encouraged Charles to return to England before the siege of Coleraine, based on his deposition. It doesn't appear that Charles had actually wanted to leave Ireland at all. But it's also possible that after many months of displacement and danger, Charles simply desired to return to his familial home, where he attached a sense of safety. Uvac Davis argues that part of the emotional attachment to a home relates to a sense of safety and rootedness in a socio-geographical site. Given Charles's continual movement across Ulster to avoid rebel forces and his experience at the Siege of Coleraine, seeing so many people die for want of aid, this desire for safety and rootedness is certainly understandable. So Charles goes over to England. Um, in accordance with the old poor laws, the refugees from Ireland, upon arrival in England, were expected to return to the parishes of previous settlement or birth. Um, subsistence was then to be provided either by their families by their own labours, or if necessary, church wardens and overseers of the poor. Now, after departing Dublin, Charles travelled to London, where, according to his will of 1685, he had at least two siblings and a cousin. So I'm assuming here they were already in London at this time. Um, we know that Charles was in London because um, on the 5th of July, Charles, alongside nine other ministers, petitioned the House of Lords for subsistence, and each of them subsequently received five pounds. In August of the same year, Charles petitioned Parliament again, uh, this time with a larger group of ministers, and you can see their names listed here. And it was ordered that these ministers were to be given monies uh, collected from the parishes of the City of London from the next fast day. Now, from this point, Charles pretty much disappears from the documentation until about 1662, when he acquired a new church living at St Anne's in Catterick, Yorkshire, where he resided until his death in 1685. From the reconstruction of Charles's life, it is clear that during his time of displacement in Ireland, he went through a series of mini-migrations. I've sort of put it very briefly um, on this chart here. Um, and these uh, mini-migrations were shaped by a number of external, external factors, most notably the movement of um, troops across Ireland. This clearly shows that refugee migration was not a linear process. Charles did not simply go from Ireland to England. Moreover, Charles's voyage across the Irish Sea and his subsequent life in England also highlights how the rebellion influenced refugees' conception of home. And it was this internal process which also impacted migration patterns. Charles never returned to Ireland. Instead, he chose to stay in England where he felt a sense of rootedness. The city of London was his familial home, and attached to this were feelings of safety, comfort, and care. And the safety and relief offered to him by his family there certainly had a lasting impact on his life. In his will of 1685, Charles bestowed to his cousin George Arnold, brother Edward Anthony, and sister Mary Sandbrook 40 shillings to, quote, buy tokens of my love. This contrasts greatly to the attitude he had towards his own grandchildren and great-grandchildren, whom... Quote, I have been entreated by diverse people to show some token of natural affection unto. 
Evidently, Charles maintained a strong attachment to London and his family there into his old age, an attachment which, which had been strengthened by his experience of the Irish Rebellion. But not all refugees returned to England permanently. After the disruption of the rebellion and subsequent wars of the three kingdoms, a number of refugees returned to Ireland, suggesting that a sense of safety was not always a principal factor in a refugee's conception of a home. Lady Mary Lee, for example, was the widow of Sir Daniel Lee, first baronet of Tyrone. Now, the initial stages of Mary's flight um, from Ireland are unknown because that she did, didn't leave a deposition. However, we know that from the spring of 1642, she had arrived in London, as on the 23rd of April, she received £30 in relief from the Committee of Contribution. This was the committee set up over the winter of 1641-1642 by the Long Parliament in, in England to distribute the money collected from the Act of Speedy Contribution and Loan, although I will add a little proviso, most of that money did not go towards the distressed islands for which it was intended. After this, Mary went on to receive a pension from Parliament, and by December 1650, she was listed as one of a number of women who had either already returned to Ireland or were about to return to Ireland. In Ireland, Mary remarried, and by the mid-1650s, she was listed in the civil survey as owning property in County Tyrone, amounting to 1,682 acres, with her new husband, William Smith, who was an alderman of Dublin. Mary's desire to return to Ireland may have centred on this property in Tyrone, part of which she could well have inherited from her first husband. At the very least, it was in County Tyrone, where she had lived as a wife, a mother, and then a widow before the rebellion. So there was a strong emotional attachment drawing her back, despite the disruption and the fear that had been caused by the rebellion and what she had witnessed in Ireland at that time. Now, the final refugee to consider is Archibald Hamilton, Archbishop of Cashel and Emley. At the time of the rebellion, uh, Hamilton and his family fled Cashel at the, at the outbreak of the rebellion and were initially sheltered by Catholic neighbours before travelling to Dublin. In May 1642, Hamilton's wife Anna provided a deposition which recorded a loss of goods and property to the value of £9,090. Now, given that the family losses were recorded by Anna and not her husband, it is very much possible that Hamilton had already gone to England at this point in order to secure relief. He obtained a recommendation to Charles I from fellow Scottish cleric John Dury, but seems to have found little comfort in the Stuart court, as by July he was seeking relief from Parliament instead. On the 20th of July 1642, Parliament ordered that £200 be given to Hamilton, having taken, quote, notice of his quality, learning and sufferings. Hamilton never returned to Ireland, but equally he did not remain in England, despite um, retaining his archbishopric. Instead, Hamilton made contact with friends in the Netherlands, and he went on to petition William II, Prince of Orange, for assistance. By 1644, Hamilton was employed as a professor of theology in the Netherlands, though the family soon moved to Sweden, and Hamilton died around 1658-1659, we're not 100% sure, and was buried in Uppsala Cathedral. Hamilton's flight to the Netherlands and then Sweden after the rebellion suggests a further conception of a home for refugees, uh, created by emotional ties to religious belief. 
Having failed to return to Scotland after Wentworth's Black Oath of 1638, Hamilton had chosen to attach himself to the Church of Ireland over the Scottish National Covenant, meaning he no longer prescribed the same Presbyterian church. In Scotland, refugee ministers who returned in the 1640s could not simply be welcomed back and accepted as preachers, for as um, Chris Langley points out, quote, they presented an unknown commodity and potential threat to the new Scottish church settlement. Scotland was therefore not a home to Hamilton because he was not free to practice his chosen form of religion. So he migrated to Protestant havens on the continent where presumably he felt he could practice his religion and he felt stronger religious ties. From the lives of these three refugees, it is clear that refugee migration was not a simple linear process. During a period of displacement, refugees would complete a series of mini-migrations before permanent settlement was established. Further to this, the reconstructions of the lives of these refugees in this paper raise an interesting question regarding how refugees conceptualised home and what effect this had um, on migration patterns. From the three case studies, it appears that a sense of emotional attachment to a socio-geographical place founded on familial connections, ties of friendship and religious association were key driving forces in determining where refugees sought permanent settlement. Um, Now, as I extend this paper into a chapter of my thesis, I hope to explore these ideas a bit further. Um, So any comments, suggestions, raging objections uh, would be very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.